0: Well, thank you so so much, Michael, for joining me today. Very very excited to chat a little bit about about your journey, your your incredible journey um, so far in life, and you know what you've done with your philanthropic journey and your philanthropic path, and then also your investment side, specifically kind of around climate, as we see this influx of, of love around our nature and climate, and what you know traditional investment can do, but you know also venture side you know, so I, I kind of want to talk a little bit about your journey first. Um, I know you've kind of talked about it a lot and I'll link below a lot of the talks that you've done, but just for a little bit of context, maybe give give the audience a little bit of the breadth of, of sort of what you've, what you've done in your life and your career so far.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. You know, I'm a uh, serial entrepreneur, so I'm 67 and I've done uh, uh, half a dozen business startups and uh, half a dozen nonprofit startups. And uh, most of my career was in the real estate business or the first part of my career. Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing that's great about real estate is when you have a great team, you know, you could take the day off. A lot of people in real estate say they love being able to play golf and the tennis st- the tenants still have to pay the rent. <laughs> but for me, Uh, the time that I got while building my real estate career allowed me to get involved in philanthropic activities that were very proactive. And perhaps the most important of them was when I was leading peacekeeping inspection teams Hmm. around the globe for the UN to 28 war zones during the 90s. uh, That gave me a Kind of perspective around about the world and at the same time i was working in the middle east at the request of some of the leadership in israel and the united states to uh visit so i met with arafat seven times in the middle of the night and uh mubarak and uh, king hussein of jordan and leadership in syria um cyprus uh afghanistan uh saudi arabia pakistan um lebanon uh so it was quite a journey it was a bit of a whirlwind and it's hard to imagine because all of that happened in close to uh, 70 trips in the 90s and now it's a, a bit of a blur but wow i'm a i'm a uh, passionate believer in being a venture philanthropist mm. not a desk chair philanthropist nothing wrong with people writing checks but where you can roll up your shirt sleeves and really lever Whatever capital you can donate with your time, uh, there's sometimes a uh, magic that takes place.
0: Wow, that's that's incredible. I, I know it was, you know, a really long time ago, and it's probably really a profound time in your life. But do you mind taking this back to like, what does that entail? You know, being in the UN and in, in inspection of that. Like, walk us through a day of, if you can of like. Sure.
1: What happened was in uh, when I was 25, which uh, would have been 19. 19- uh, 65, 70, when 1980, you know, I would, uh, the way I'd say it is I'd go to sleep, afraid that I'd wake up dead because of a nuclear war. Mm-hmm. Um, in the eighties, you had, um, not just tactical nuclear, not just strategic nuclear weapons, but tactical nuclear weapons. And the difference is, uh, tactical nuclear weapons are battlefield weapons weapons that are stored in local depots and much more subject to terrorism rather than missiles that are in missile silos that can be better protected or in submarines. And the world had gone crazy making nuclear weapons smaller and smaller, and it made it lower the nuclear tripwire. And so in the 80s, there was a real move in an organization I was very involved in called Business Executives for National Security, BENS. Uh, to help uh, raise the nuclear tripwire by eliminating tactical nuclear weapons in Europe. And when people hear tactical nuclear weapons, think of a football-sized nuclear weapon. You can't imagine it. But normally, you think of these weapons on on these huge missile launchers that are 100 feet long. So I got very involved in that area, and it morphed from domestic national security where I was working with people in the Pentagon and Senate and and uh, the Hill lobbying to help uh, get the chemical weapons ban done. To my wanting to transfer the skills that I had learned into the international arena, where the Cold War was winding down and uh, there was um, you know the UN was every was was the the dog that everybody liked to kick. Uh, the UN <laughs> had a mandate that was impossible. Most people don't realize when they think of the UN as this uh, either ineffective organization or, you know, people fear these black helicopters. The mm-hmm. budget of the UN was less than the New York City Fire Department. Wow. You can't even imagine how could you expect a global agency to function with such a small budget? And of course it's a horrible place because when you put all of the people of the world together, you have so much political intrigue that there's backstabbing. But the thing that I came to the conclusion was that if you close the UN down and set about trying to create a new organization that was better, the new organization wouldn't be much better than what it replaced because the nature of the constituency yeah, the, yeah. is just the
0: same. It's still human beings. Uh, and yeah.
1: Exactly. So within that context, what was happening as russia and the united states and the cold war was winding down where these peacekeeping forces that the un would field having militaries from many different countries sometimes work side by side and uh, the problem is that the security council of the un would extend or create a mandate and then they would have another bill and the two bills might be contradictory so mm. one should say you have soldiers with weapons and another should say, you have soldiers without weapons. And it's very difficult because it's a legislative body, not a military authority. Right. So we spent a lot of time thinking about how peacekeeping could be organized in the future and what was the role of peacekeeping. And I led teams to the 28 principal peacekeeping sites around the globe. Wow. And a, a typical trip, you know, the one that comes to mind is we were on the ground we left New York and flew through uh, Taiwan to get to Cambodia. Where, when we got to Cambodia, we arrived and immediately were ferried in helicopters up to the North uh, West District, where there was a temporary camp where King Sihanouk was holding court. But this was a moment in 1993 where the Khmer Rouge were being decommissioned and they were trying to move Cambodia from a wartime economy to a peacetime Mm -hmm. economy. After the Vietnam War was over, the Khmer Rouge took over Cambodia and basically killed anybody who wore glasses or was from the middle class because they were trying to eliminate the intelligentsia and the entire academic population. So the intellectual capital of Cambodia was largely eroded by the craziness of the Khmer Rouge trying to get everybody back to work camps and and instill a kind of hardline communist part. But now the talks had uh, already occurred and the Khmer Rouge were decommissioning. And when I brought a team of 18 people who was normally from the Pentagon and from the State Department and from business and academics and media, that was the mix that we historians. And by having that diverse group, We were trying to buck the trend of policy Mm. because normally a group like that would be monolithic. It would be everybody from the State Department or everybody from academics, and you miss you mix diversity, uh, and all of a sudden you get new insights. So, as a simple example, in Phnom Penh, which is the capital of Cambodia, the UN had been the largest employer for a decade because that's where they were headquartered. But when they were thinking of leaving, Nobody was realizing that from a pure economic point of view, they were going to leave a vacuum because the economic spending of all of the UN personnel, if they left while they were leaving, trying to transition the economy, they were also creating a hole in the economy and they had to think about how to do a transition. So the military folks might see it one way, but business people would see it another. And by mixing that, we got to look at... You know, different sites from Cambodia, the killing fields of Cambodia, Syria, Cyprus, El Salvador, Mozambique, Angola. Each of them was a different kind of conflict and the UN was playing a different role. We were in Rwanda uh, a year after the massacre in Rwanda for the first anniversary to try and see what lessons learned uh, there were. It happened that we, when we landed in Rwanda... That was the day that uh, Rabin was assassinated in Israel. And because I had these two uh, portfolios of back-channel work in the Middle East and peacekeeping work at the UN, as a volunteer, I wasn't paid for any of this. I had to decide, should I leave my peacekeeping trip and go to Israel for the funeral? And I decided that I couldn't leave the peacekeeping trip because that was something for the future, even though I was devastated by... uh, Prime Minister Rabin's assassination. So it was a very, uh, a particularly tough day that I remember I had to decide which was the more important.
0: Wow, that's incredible. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting because what I really, what I really look at and and what I've really enjoyed doing over the last decade, you know, running Cause Artists as a platform and interviewing founders from around the world and now interviewing investors, I've come to this sort of realization that, and I'd love to get your perspective on this. That business has a unique way of of bringing people together that I, I find fascinating and a little bit like inspiring. I feel like it, it has the potential to kind of solve a lot of these problems that we sort of have. And you've seen, you know, the the maturation of this impact investing world, right? It, it's sort of this this terminology now, but it, it seems like you've been on that route for a very long time. I guess, what's your thoughts on, you know, using financial capital, you know, early stage investments, whether it's venture, private equity, whatever it might be, but using that as a way to solve whether it's domestic or international issues.
1: I I think of business as a knife. Mm -hmm. It could be used to cut a meal Mm -hmm. that I need to eat from. And sadly, it could be used as a weapon to harm somebody. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when you were talking about business. At its best, where business is non-ideological and problem solving, having people organize around building a product or a service and delivering it where it's um, blind to what your race or gender or sexual orientation is, because you're just selling a legitimate Mm -hmm. product or service, it can be a tool for the good. But unfortunately, it can also be used as a tool for the bad, because I think there's plenty of evidence that, as an example, the oil companies have known about climate change for 30 years. Exxon has been raising its oil rigs in the water because they knew the sea would be rising while they've been funding public relations campaigns to uh, stop people from knowing that. So I think business rather than thinking of it as a tool for good, is an amplifier. It takes good intentions and can amplify them to actions that can truly serve man. And at the same time, it can be used, unfortunately, as a lever for undue influence. You know, one of the things that's interesting is in uh, the early 60s, there was a famous economist named Milton Friedman from the Chicago School of Thought which was a very conservative school of thought. And the conception of a corporation at that time was that it had a single duty, which was to serve its shareholders' purpose. But a poll taken about five years ago of some thousands of young people said that the purpose of a corporation is to solve the problems of the world. And right. it's a completely different conception of what corporate power can be used for and hopefully more people want to use business organizations to harness creativity and collective action to to make a positive difference in this world.
0: Do you think the rise in climate investing, the rise in just looking at climate as an asset <laughs> has the potential to bring some of these people together in a way that it hasn't before because it does uniquely affect us all, obviously in different ways. You know, climate will, will affect different populations worse than others in certain parts of the world and so on. But it is a unique product, let's say, <laughs> that we all use and we all sort of depend on. Does that give you a little bit of optimism that maybe this, you know, quote unquote product, so to speak, has that opportunity to bridge the gap between these cultural or racial differences? where business has this unique opportunity to do that within this realm. And this is a big asset class, right? It's gonna be huge. It already is, but it's gonna be huge.
1: You know, I think that there's been a number of great trading histories where governments have fought markets Mm. uh, when they're defending a currency. And my general sense is that in the long term, markets are more powerful than governments. Uh, That might be a way to understand Bitcoin as an example. Mm -hmm. If you you believe in Bitcoin, eventually the market will overwhelm government intervention uh, in one way or another, maybe not completely. But the point that I'm making is climate, unless you're in the very few fractions of percent of people who don't believe The earth is heating up, regardless of whether you think it's man-made or not. Most uh, all science that I know suggests it's Um, man-made. The fascinating thing about climate is the best estimate that I've heard is that if we all just took the money we have in our bank or pocket and took a nickel out of every dollar, we could solve the climate problem. And you say, how could this be such a challenge when all it takes is a nickel out of a dollar? But you know, there's a similar there there's starving people in the world, and yet we know in the aggregate the world produces enough food for everybody. How can the world produce enough food for everybody but not everybody be fed? So there's all these market anomalies, and for the most part, I think you're starting to see the good levering of business overwhelming the people whose interests are to prevent us making progress. So you have, uh, I think last year was the first year, I'm not sure exactly, but I believe last year was the first year where the additional energy capacity in the world was renewable to a greater extent than fossil fuel. Uh, That's a very important milestone. And while it's still far from enough, it's amazing to drive on the road and see how many Tesla and other electric vehicles are starting to be on the road. I just uh, bought a Rivian. I I took the uh, I own a couple of Teslas, but I got my Rivian last week, and it's an amazing, amazing. Uh, oh, truck what's your activity. review on
0: that? What's yeah. your review? Uh
1: Well, first of all, there's some innovations that are just fantastic. Um they they just, you know, I'm not an advertiser for Rivian. I just have it a week, but just driving a Rivian electric truck was yeah. comfortable. And they've thought of a million little details that since I've never owned a pickup truck before, I can't tell you. But you know, there's flashlights in the door if you need a <laughs> flashlight and uh the speaker is a boom box that comes out and is a Bluetooth speaker, and uh the way they have uh they have a built-in um Uh, air compressor, which is genius. So if you're taking bikes, you can pump up the bike. You know, there's just uh, lots of, it's just, but fundamentally it's an electric car, which is the most exciting about it. You know, I know on my uh, Teslas that the driving a Tesla seems to be about uh, the equivalent of a dollar a gallon. I'm not sure that's the best way to say it, but the operating costs per mile of a Tesla are about a third. Of what it costs with a gas-powered car, and most people just look at the price of the purchase, but the lifetime price makes it a dramatically uh, better. All the EVs dramatically uh, better.
0: uh, Well, just at the recent uh, Tesla Investor Day, uh, Elon had said that you know people think that Teslas are really expensive, (laughs) but he's like the average Tesla is cheaper than basically any brand new you know, car or market from GMC or Ford or something like that is like any American made car costs more than, you know, the Tesla besides like the the S model. But the, but then he said the Y the was, three. The, it's not really expensive. That, that theory is kind of passed because a right. new car from GMC or Ford is going to be, 4050 grand, you know just like a Tesla so i think that part is coming down and consumers will do it but i think it's still only what 1% of the market is ev
1: yeah. maybe but even you awesome. know i think they're doing a half a million cars or something a year mm-hmm. and this is 2023 and 2024 are the year where finally all the other car companies are coming out yeah. with electric vehicles yeah. bmw mercedes mm-hmm. uh honda it's uh volvo it's it's just amazing it's you know it's gone from one to many, and uh, I know when I have friends who are telling me they just bought a, a BMW electric station wagon. Uh, something is changing because these are people who, while they're you know interested in the climate, it may not be their primary issue, yeah. but it just makes sense to buy an electric vehicle, and uh, so so that's a great thing to see.
0: Nobody's going to use a home phone; they'd rather just have an iPhone or a Samsung because right. it's just better, right? right? So at some point people will just notice that it's just a, it's just a better way to drive and and eventually it's going to be the safest way to drive ever created. So that's also a massive plus for for a lot of people making that transition. And that that's a perfect segue into I think, you know, back to sort of some of the the climate investments that you and the team have made or, you know, I'm sure you see some incredible technologies come across your desk. You know, Monarch was one that you know, I had interviewed uh, Carlo a while back, and I thought what him and the team has built. I think it was a, an engineer from Tesla is actually one yes. of the co-founders. Yeah. So, but I think that that's a great example of looking at different areas of the economy where electrification or looking from a climate lens can really you know solve some really interesting things. And agriculture is a huge a, a huge part of the economy, so that's that's massive right there. But like, what are some of the other things that you and the team have maybe invested in or excited about within within climate over the next 10 years
1: sure so you know when you talk about when you talk about the range of activities you want to look at ways to produce electricity and you want to look at ways to save energy because they're both part of the equation so we have a stealth company uh, that hasn't gone public yet as to its work but all I can say is, That it's taking wave motion, the up and down waves, and turning that into energy, Mm. uh, which is just an extra, it'll be the cheapest energy on Earth because the water is moving, you know, think of it as a piston up and down for lack Mm. of a better way of saying it. But then you have to say, so if you're producing energy out in the middle of the ocean, what do you do with it? It turns out that there are some uses for energy, Pentagon and elsewhere, but you could produce hydrogen. And then barge it back to land, Hmm. or uh, you could have certain telecommunication links or server farms that uh, that uh, use power like that. So that's pretty fascinating. Uh, One of the companies we're very involved with is a company called Bright Night that you'll hear about more and more. It's um, uh, it was founded by Martin Herman, who was the second largest private solar developer in the country when he decided to start a new venture. Uh, So he split with his partner in what used to be called 8-Minute Energy and then started Bright Night. And in the utility world, the most important thing to understand about utilities is up till now, solar developers basically had a simple contract with a utility. When the sun shines, you'll take all the energy I give you. And wind developers had the same contract, which was... When the wind blows, you'll take all the energy I can give you. But that meant that solar developers and wind developers were not really conscious of the utilities' problems because the utility would just take whatever they sold them. But from the utilities' point of view, they were taking as much solar and as much wind. But how did they satisfy their customers' needs when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining? They have to be conscious of the demand for energy, not just the source of it. And so what that means is that up until now, utilities could only take about, it's very rough, 30% of their energy from renewables because they had to have a baseload either from a nuclear power plant or a coal-fired power plant that come hell or high water, they had a baseload of energy that they could use. Well. We'll never get above that 30% unless we approach the problem completely differently. And uh, so Bright Night is coming into the utility world in the power production with the roots of solar and wind, but the intelligence that the, util- that the utilities need. In the Bright Night has over 100 employees and only a handful used to be in solar and wind. The rest come from the utility world. Hmm. And what they do is they use advanced software and artificial intelligence to create a system that um, mixes solar, wind, battery, hydrogen, and uh, um, hydro, and takes all of these different power sources and mixes them in a way that from the utilities point of view, it's absolutely dependable baseload power. And only when you do that, can the utility then start to raise the limit of renewables above that 30% and actually eventually go to 100%. So this is sort of the renewable utility story 2.0 that'll happen in the next 15 years, whereas the first 15 years or the last just the last 15 years, we're really kind of take or pay. You just, you take all the solar uh, that you're given and take all the wind. And uh, Bright Knight is not the only company that's figured this out. It's really the five or so major global independent power producers uh, that everybody knows about. And what's unique about Bright Knight is we don't know what the term is, but it's kind of like a unicorn. It'll be uh, it'll be the first new international independent power producer out of the box that will have a global footprint of being able to deliver dependable uh power what's called dis- dependable dispatchable power meaning that they'll give the utility exactly what the utility needs when the utility needs it mm-hmm. and that's the next revolution and that's going to be the difference if we're talking 15 years from now we will have had to overcome this problem in every utility or they'll be stuck at that 30% level so it's sort of exciting i was the Our team was the first private investors in uh, uh, Bright Night, and today uh, they have a 20 plus gigawatt uh, pipeline, which is about $20 billion of projects. And while in the development world, you would normally only expect a percentage of those because of the artificial intelligence that we use, uh, we actually customize each Hmm. project to the specific needs of each utility and therefore we should have a dramatically higher uh, success rate in uh, translating pipeline into actual projects and uh, our spades are going in the ground this year for our first projects we've already signed uh you know quite a, quite a, a lot it's it's one of the most exciting things i've ever been involved with
0: just the advances in renewables are just in Efficient energy is it going to make it more affordable, or will it be cleaner, better for you know humans? What, better for the what earth
1: people earth? don't realize is solar is already cheaper than any renewable just on the basis. Uh, the the gift that most people don't realize is that the cost per unit of energy, kilowatt hours, whatever it is, will be cheaper when it's done. the The difference is. That we have an existing infrastructure, right. uh, and we're going to have to convert a lot of that infrastructure to adjust to an electric world instead of a fossil fuel world. That
0: seems to be the hardest part, right? Is that transitional period of this, you know, old antiquated grid. Uh, that we're I, on. Uh,
1: you know, I'm I'm a cynic, but I would argue that some part of that is because the entrenched fossil fuel companies. Are fighting for their life, and therefore they're using every tactic they can to try and blur the distinction that fundamentally not only is um, uh, renewable power cleaner, but it'll be cheaper too. It's it's very simple to understand why
0: mm-hmm.
1: the sun is shining. It's a free resource. So well, you know when you burn a fossil fuel, you have to dig it out of the ground and then burn it. But every every unit that you use of it, you have to pay for. But once you have a solar panel sucking up sunlight, or a wind turbine being blown by the wind, or any kind of uh, geothermal, think of it this way, you're not paying for the heat with geothermal, Mm -hmm. that's free. All you have to do is transfer it up out of the ground and into the house or the building. So the beauty about renewables is fundamentally, they're simply cheaper.
0: Well, I don't think you're a cynic at all. I think they've just, that's been the playbook for a very long time. There was a great documentary about the electric car. Yeah. It was about who who had been Killed
1: the, who had the Car?
0: Co- yeah. I was like, you know, like everybody thinks like, oh, Tesla started, or Prius. I guess Prius was kind of the first one that hit the market big time. But I was like, a decade, 15 years before that, there was like this movement that was like totally and impressively crushed, you know? But it was like that was essentially, you know, the fossil fuel industry kind of taking a a strategic playbook and and doing, you know, kind of what they do. And it's sort of the same thing, right? But I think at the end of the day, there's just this irremovable philosophy. And and honestly, the movement of capital is what I think is what's so different now. You know, you have you know every other week what, there's a hundred million dollar climate fund, <laughs> you know, yeah. in, in a specific area, right? So I think that, but I don't think you're a cynic. I think they've just done this playbook before, right? And they just they're gonna do it till it doesn't work. Did you want to touch on maybe uh, m- maybe one more from the portfolio?
1: Yeah, that- you know, um, when when you think about it, there's lots of different ways to think about renewables um, uh, production, meaning wave energy, wind mm-hmm. energy, hydrogen. Um, hydro batteries, you know, just within the batteries, because they're so pervasive. We're dealing with new technologies that allow batteries to uh, um, be made more efficiently. There's a huge issue with lithium and other rare earths that go into batteries that the Chinese have uh, cornered around the world very cleverly. Mm -hmm. So recycling becomes a huge opportunity. And we're very excited by some of the recycling plays to take worn-out batteries and take that black stuff in the middle of it and turn it into new uh, a new battery that's just as good. You know, in the built environment, uh, two of the companies that we're really excited by one is called Harvest Thermal, and Harvest mm-hmm. Thermal marries a, a heat pump with a hot water system and allows the two to be run off of the same hot water tank. And uh, because you could heat the water up during the day when the energy is cheapest and use it when it's most expensive, this is also a form of what's called load shifting. So particularly Mm -hmm. in California, where you have different prices for utilities at different times in the day, Harvest Thermal is a huge saver, not only because it turns your HVAC and hot water into all electric, but it allows you to load shift and uh, be much more efficient in what you're winning awards uh, all over the place. It's exciting. We're an early backer. They've just won some major awards. Um, In the built environment, another company uh, that we're involved with uh, called uh, 3E Nano is a uh, startup that has a technology I wasn't familiar with before called sputtering. Think of it as a spray gun. Uh, you know, uh, uh, it's a spray gun that's a very, very specific type, and that type is called a sputterer. And it sprays a kind of plastic coating, either on glass or polycarbonate windows. And that particular plastic coating, when I say plastic, I'm not sure if plastic is the, but it sprays a coating which has an insulating, Capacity without degrading the ability of light to go through it. It's hmm. easy to insulate. You know, if you just put a piece of plywood over a piece of glass, it'll insulate, but you can't see through the glass anymore. The, the key is to better insulate the glass. And here's a statistic we learned in underwriting that company that I never heard of. You know, that the amount of energy that is wasted through windows around the globe is greater. Than the amount of energy burned in the aviation industry.
0: Oh my God!
1: Uh, just to give you an idea of the kind of savings ah. available for better insulating windows. So you know, in a typical building, the uh, the part that is wood or whatever your material, the the energy is escaping mostly through windows because of bad insulation. Mm-hmm. And uh, so instead of having double pane windows, this technology will allow you to. Very cheaply spray uh, this uh, sputtering on a window and have it get pretty close to a thermopane at a fraction of the cost so that's a, a really exciting uh project that's coming out of the ground and then maybe the last one is a company called Endrip, which okay. is uh in the agricultural field drip irrigation mm-hmm. for people who don't know drip irrigation is when you take little plastic pipes and run them down the row of each plant in a in a large scale farm and typically in the past many of people have seen those sprinklers that are like 150 feet right. long and they go around in a big circle and when you're flying over America you see these weird circles wherever there're farms it turns out that if you look at the amount of water that's used in that kind of irrigation you're wasting maybe 40, 50, 60% of the water because it's going where the plants aren't. But if Mm -hmm. you only take water through a pipe that's strung right along the roots each row uh, using 60, 70, 80, 50% less water, you actually can deliver water exactly when it's needed to the plant at just the right time. And you can put fertilizer through that pipe as well and again, you can use a quarter of the fertilizer or half of the fertilizer because it's not being wasted in the areas where the plants aren't. So mm. NDRIP there's been drip irrigation uh, from Israel for 50 years that's sold all around the world uh, by a company called Nettofim, which actually I believe is owned by Mexicans now, but it was developed in Israel. But that original, excuse me, that original system needed a water pump. So you needed to have a level of technology where you had a water pump, either an electric source or uh, gasoline. Um, N-Drip is uh, gravity-fed, so you don't need to have the pump. Mm. And that uh, makes it much more accessible. And um, you have companies, you know, we have a crisis right now with the Colorado River, where uh, in Arizona, Arizona is so stressed for water that they're having to decide whether to force uh, farmers to stop farming because if they free up the water for the cities, they're going to want the water for the cities, even if they put the farmers out of business. But that's not very sustainable. Mm -hmm. And a company like Endrip allows farmers to convert from their typical sprinkler to uh, drip irrigation and save enough water that they can have a win-win of keeping the farmers in business. While still uh, providing uh, the needs. But another example, which is why we're invested, because every investment we do, we track the climate fighting potential, the CO2 reduction potential of each investment using the latest methodology. So we score, we serve two masters. We serve the master of climate and the master of profit. And if something can't be a successful business, we can't back it with our funds, but it has to have a climate, a maximum Climate impact. And in um, agriculture, most people don't realize that about 28% of the carbon pollution or carbon equivalent pollution, because some of it is methane, comes from agriculture. It's not just farming, it's when you're composting, uh, when you have a lot of the, the biggest, obviously, is cows. When hmm. cows belch, uh, or excuse my language, fart, they're, they're um, letting off methane that is very damaging and one of the reasons people think we're going to have to eat a lot less meat is because it's very important to the environment that we reduce the amount of methane that cows are producing there are some technologies where um compounds are being created that can be fed to cows that actually will make them produce less methane so we're going to have that but you have lab grown meat and so forth yeah but the Cellular. point that i'm making is that one of the big producers of methane is rice production when you have flood irrigation? If you think of your pictures mm-hmm. of Asia, how rice is grown in flooded uh, areas, well, in areas that are challenged for water and you want to have a climate impact, it turns out if you can get forms of rice to grow using drip irrigation instead of flood irrigation, you save incredible amounts of water, you know, 90% or more, because you're not flooding the field. I'm not sure if my 90% is the exact number, but it's it's a large amount of water. Sure. But more importantly, because you're not doing flood irrigation, the methane production is dramatically reduced and it turns out if you look at all of the rice production around the globe, it's a major contributor to methane and methane is much worse for the environment than CO2. It's like the equivalent of 40 times as powerful as uh, CO2 because of the chemical compound. So if we could reduce methane, another place where methane comes out at oil wells, it leaks out of oil wells. And so there's a lot of legislation around having much more stringent building standards so that oil wells capture the methane and it doesn't uh, go off into the atmosphere. That's
0: what I wanted to ask was the capturing part. I've noticed that a landfill close to my house has equipped itself Quite beautifully, really, with like these methane capturing mechanisms where they can, you can then transport the methane and use it as energy and and other aspects. So there's sort of this regenerative possibility with the capturing of methane. I don't know if landfills is sort of a perfect scenario because you can capture it easier than you probably can capture cow farts, (laughs) you know. But is that something, you know, whether it's oil refineries or other aspects of, of the economy where methane is, is sprayed out a bit more, can is there ways to capture that and yeah. regenerate that as sort uh, of absolutely.
1: Energy? You know what what most people don't realize is one of the reasons that climate is so complex Mm -hmm. is we could talk about any one policy, your favorite Mm -hmm. policy. And of course, if there was any one policy, it would be the climate tax or the carbon tax. Mm -hmm. If you had a carbon tax, it would be the single most effective way to harness the creative entrepreneurial power to reduce carbon. But there's a lot of sad reasons that we're not likely to see that anytime soon. But even a carbon tax under most scenarios would only address maybe 30 percent of the problem what we like to say i'm part of a team at mit called the climate pathways project that has the arguably one of the very best visualization simulators of climate you can put all the policies you want into it and see how it will affect climate over the next hundred years Mm -hmm. and the takeaway is there's no silver bullet there's no one policy What there is is silver buckshot. There's a Hmm. a a portfolio of, frankly, no less than a dozen separate policy areas, and each of them is a hundred policy areas. (laughs) But the the point is that we're never going to solve this simply by going to drip irrigation or electric vehicles. We're going to have to solve it in the built environment by making converting uh, heating and cooling to electric from gas and oil. We're going to have to better insulate homes and buildings so they don't leak energy. We're going to have to have all transportation eventually electric. So we're going to have electric cars. We're going to have electric trains, planes eventually with difficulty we will have a lot more electric. My guess is the longest flights for our lifetime will remain fossil fuel. And then you'll have to have offsetting uh, Mm -hmm. credits of one sort or another you know, we're going to have to, within um, the world, you have transportation, the built environment and industry. We know how to have transportation be electric. We know how to have the built environment be electric. The toughest is industrial heat because there you need temperatures over a thousand degrees centigrade. And it's very hard to to get those temperatures using renewables, but they're even beginning. To see that in one area is deep geothermal, because if you go a thousand feet down, you can get some heat there. So that'll be the the third big category. Right now, industrial heat is lagging behind the other two, because it's so hard to use fossil fuels to get that intense heat. But you need that heat for metallurgical mining. You need it in the plastics business. You need it in pharmaceuticals. There's a lot of industrial processes that need industrial heat and uh, so uh, we've looked at a lot of different ways to harness renewables in the industrial heat area.
0: I'll end on two questions here. The first would be kind of talked a little bit about the the curation of capital into into climate at a at a very, you know, large scale and, and hopefully it continues to grow and and is allocated appropriately, which is the most important part of all this. Right. But, you know, with Tiger 21, I think another uh, amazing venture that that you created in your life, it has this curation of, of wealth effect, right? You have family offices, right. you have high net worth individuals coming together. What is the climate conversations like with them? Because look, at the end of the day, to me, it takes capital injection. It takes really, really thoughtful allocation of this capital, right? To, to yeah. be appropriately allocated. What, is, what are conversations like within Tiger 21 right now around climate, around, like you said, you guys look at look at it, analyze and look at a climate score before you even make an investment right. but throughout the the community of investors like do you say everybody shares that same philosophy of of due diligence no
1: we, look and, we're the we're now the largest uh, or certainly the premier network of high net worth investors around the globe uh within Tiger 21 our members manage about 150 billion dollars and we're growing quite rapidly um so climate, uh, I'm very proud that within Tiger 21, we have a climate investors network, a group of us within Tiger mm-hmm. 21 who are major climate investors. We actually have a lot of oil and gas people who are members of Tiger, and uh, it's all over the place. Republicans, Democrats, liberals, <laughs> conservatives, straight, gay. We're pretty men, women, uh, Americans, international. We we, pr- we pride ourselves on Diversity, because the more diversity you have, the better the learning and the better the experience. So we have to be respectful of people who have different opinions and uh, different approaches. But my sense is most of the oil and gas folks in Tiger, but not all of them, most of them acknowledge climate change as a problem, and they acknowledge that uh, the day of fossil fuels will come to an end. It is a transitionary product. But until the time that renewables are big enough, what they would say is when you turn the light switch on in your room, you want the light to go on. And what's going to make that light go on during the transition is continuing to use fossil fuels, even if it's dwindling over time. Uh, So climate is an important and a growing thing. We know that a majority of Americans believe climate is an issue, something like 70 percent Uh, So uh, Republicans, Democrats, young people, and uh, it's an interesting question uh, why you can have a majority of people in a democracy know there's a problem, but be prevented from actually addressing it. And this has to do with um, the way a democracy and our First Amendment rights allow us to express ourselves in ways uh, that affect votes disproportionately to the nature you know people who have a lot of money can uh, have a lot of influence on politics that may not reflect uh, the will of quote the people and of course that goes both ways and everybody likes to say it's everybody else's will that uh, is thwarting me and that's that's what the nature of a democracy is but i'm i'm quite proud about the gl- growing impact uh, in terms of in terms of what does it look like in the climate world i'm in the venture part of the climate world. That's yeah. that's the part that I find most exciting. We we focus on what are called late seed and early A in the climate fund we've just done called the Muse Convergence Fund. Uh, we just completed raising capital for that. It's a $50 million fund. Uh, we're not raising capital now, so I can talk about it. There we are, we're not the first money necessarily very often there might be a friends and family round mm-hmm. to start a business because somebody has an idea. We want to get involved at the point or the cusp of commercialization. We want to see a product that's defined and a customer that is expressed interest in that product. We want to understand how it's going to be delivered. And then we want to see whether the management is strong enough uh, to build a company because if it's, Two college professors who know nothing about business, they may have very unreasonable expectations about what it takes to build a business, and we want to see a route to cash flow positive. Even if it's a couple years out, we want people to have thought about these issues, and of course, we have to look at what the competition and what's called the addressable market is because uh, we only have till 2030, that's not too far away to cut emissions in half. So we're mostly uh, interested in technologies that have the capacity through technology to scale, to have an impact. That's, That's really what we're desperately looking to do is back companies to have an impact. So you mentioned Monarch. We were, I think in one of the first rounds of Monarch, we've been there for a long time because obviously, if you can become what I what we call the Tesla of the tractor business, you're gonna have a big impact because of all of the tractors that are used uh, in the farming sector.
0: I'll end on, on the last question and you know, you've done so many things through, throughout your throughout your life and throughout your career. I, I kind of want to touch on a, a little bit of it, advice, if you don't mind maybe sharing. I know you wrote a book, Think Bigger, you know, really focusing, you know, on entrepreneurship and, and the possibilities there. And I think if you can maybe look at this younger generation, right? I mean, I think there's so many amazing possibilities with the technology, but at the end of the day, it takes, it still takes people, right? AI is not quite yet that to, to, to spark inspiration and create companies and do all these things. They can be definitely be a, a an assistant to all this, but it takes human risk takers and it takes dreamers, right? I guess, what are some advice you'd give young entrepreneurs, in this day of age, obviously things have changed. But then also on top of that, you know, for emerging investors as well, you know, because you've been on both sides of the coin.
1: Very often, I'm asked by some young person that they have two job opportunities, and which is the better opportunity? And it's the wrong question. The question is, <laughs> what's the better opportunity for you? Who are you? So uh, I think one of the early chapters in my book is called "Know Thyself," and mm. you really have to understand who you are. It's a process of continual evolution. I'm 67, and I hope I'm still learning uh, about myself through meditation, which I do regularly, and analysis. But there's lots of other different ways that one can, can learn. And I think that you really have to tap into your core, because too many people are thinking about a job as just a way to put food on the table and of course that's important i don't minimize that in any way but if you take a broader view my experience has been if you can tap into what your unique potential is i i believe i'm not a religious person but i believe every one of us has potential that can be revealed if you can put yourself in the right setting in the right space the right headspace. So I, I really think this notion of tapping into itself. And on the other hand, I think the most important thing is hope. And it's true that hope isn't a strategy. You know, if if you have a problem, just hoping it'll go away isn't going to make it go away. But a hope that humanity has been saving itself yeah. for time immemorial. It is true that we are facing challenges that seem daunting, not just uh, the climate challenge, but the political division within our country, the threat of nuclear weapons. We could go on and on and on. But my experience is that you know, very often people think I'm a pessimist. I couldn't be a pessimist if I'm starting companies and thinking about future (laughs) solutions. So I'm a little bit of a pessimist and a little bit of an optimist, and maybe I'm just a realist. I I don't know. We used to say that Pessimists are the only realists, so I don't use hope as a solution, but I do use it as the fuel that allows me to keep reaching to make the world a better place. It is it is true that the world is broken. There's uh, an expression in Hebrew called Tikkun Olam, to repair the world. The notion that the uh, world is broken and we're each called to repair it, and um, That's what drives me, I think, to the extent that each of us could think about making the world a little better place uh, by, at the very least, having careers that aren't making the world a worse place. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things that people can do. I I don't want to go into the specifics because each person has to come to some fundamental understanding themselves. But the worst thing to do is to go to work and feel like you're making the world a worse place. When there's plenty of opportunities to go to work and make the world a better place. And you mentioned philanthropy. uh, And, uh, you know, I think that for me, the thing that I'm most proud of right now is that for the last 15 years, I like to say I'm all climate all the time. And what I mean by that is um, in our philanthropy, in our politics, and in our finance, climate is uh, perhaps the main. Lens through which we look at each of them. Uh, Just uh, recently, we uh, endowed the Yale School of uh, Yale Law School uh, Environmental Protection Clinic, and uh, as I mentioned, we gave uh, um, the School of Climate and Sustainability Climate Change and Sustainability at Ben Gurion University, which is a major desert research institute, and we're working Hmm. with MIT on the Climate Pathways Project and at earth justice where we're, uh, mm-hmm. quite proud to be associated. So I think that, um, you know, politically, uh, we, what we like to do is say, uh, we're in a position where each year we say, where can our impact be maximized? So, you know, quite frankly, in 2020, I felt that, uh, electing a president that would be climate sensitive was important. And I was proud to, uh, be helpful to, uh, uh, Biden getting elected. And the IRA bill is a perfect example of the greatest climate bill in history. For all its flaws, it's mm-hmm. still the greatest climate bill in history. So politics matters. So there are times where, you know, canvassing for a politician that you believe in, giving money to a politician you believe in, uh, doing anything you can to help an election that's legal, of course, uh, is where you can have the biggest impact for climate. There's other times we're investing, as I mentioned, in this emerging power company where that's going to have an impact. Yes. So when 2020 was over, we moved into financial and focused on that new power company. Uh, we have a presidential election coming up in 2024 and uh, climate should be uh Front and center, and we're going to do whatever we can to make a difference.
0: Well, thank you so much, Michael, for taking the time. Uh, I know you're extremely busy. I'm just so grateful to to get to chat with with people who've done some incredible things in our life. It inspires me, um, and I hope it inspires others. So, best of luck for for the next couple of decades to come with you and the team. And you know, thanks for thanks for living a an amazing life and sharing your story. Best of luck, and thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you, and thanks for doing what you do. It's a pleasure to be here. I Wish you the best of luck as well.